Morning. If you're not already, if I'd uh, invite you to open to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We have been looking at verses 1 through 10. That's page 998 in one of those blue Bibles, if you're using one of those. How are you this morning? Okay. Well, I'm going to jump right in. I'm not going to waste any time. I'm going to jump right in. We are in part five of this section. We will be in it a few more Sundays as well. Um, My goal is to complete this one section concerning younger women today, which will be difficult for me um, because I have a lot of material, but I'm going to push hard to make that happen. And that way you can come back and if anybody wants to reference it later, they can capture it all in just one, one sermon. Just as a reminder, this section of Titus describes behavior, behavior that is fitting for those who believe in the gospel and follow after Christ. It's behavior that's fitting for them, appropriate for them, that is right for them, that flows out of the gospel. Paul's concern, as we've been looking at the text, is that others, those outside of the church, others uh, would not think badly of the gospel or, or poorly of the gospel because of the poor or bad conduct of the followers of the gospel, Christians, professing Christians. And so he is calling attention to certain behaviors within certain groups that needs to be addressed, how they ought to live in light of the gospel, the teachings of Christ, and that's what we've been looking at. We left off in verse 3 of Titus chapter 2, so I'm going to pick up right there just for the sake of time. Uh, I'd also say, want to add this, I'm talking, the text is talking about younger women, and specifically that's, in that culture, would have been married, married women with children, because most of them would have been. If you are not that, a young wife and mother, don't check out. There's no reason for you to check out, and let me tell you why. You should actually be just as engaged as a young wife and mother. And the reason would be is because as we read the scriptures and we see what God is saying to young women, we learn something about God. We learn about his character. We learn about the things that are important to him, what he treasures, what he desires. And in understanding those things, we can make application in other areas of our life. Beyond that, we have been called to be disciple makers, to help people grow in the knowledge of Christ and what he would have for us, and in Christ-likeness, yes? Yes, yes? All right, that's what God has called us to. So you may certainly have young women in your realm, in your family, that you might need to speak to, or you might have an opportunity to assist in godliness, or towards godliness. And so you should be listening so that you know how you ought to do that. So when we read the scriptures, even though sometimes they speak specifically to a particular group within the church, there is absolutely no reason for you not to listen. In fact, you should listen very closely, just like the group that is being addressed. You with me? Verse 3, here we go. Thomas, did you pray for me like I asked you to? 
all right, then I, I'm going to trust in the Lord that hopefully he's going to answer your prayer. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, malicious, otherwise, other, otherwise translated as malicious gossips, or slaves to much wine, or slaves to excessive drinking. We covered that last time. They are to teach what is good, verse 4, and so train the young women to, stop right there. So verse 4 goes on to lay out a number of specific behaviors connected to the life of a first century young woman. And as I've already said, most were married and had children during that time. And um, I'm I'm doing my best to stick to my notes because there's so many more things uh, I could certainly say or maybe want to say, and I'd love to talk to you afterwards or not after the service, but at any other time, if you have questions or speak to one of the other elders, but there are certainly more things we could even say about the fact that our culture is very different now in that way, and why might that be? But I, I'm going to refrain uh, from addressing those matters. But just for the sake so we understand the text, young women in the first century uh, church would have generally been married, and they would have been having children. One writer says, the apostle moved naturally to instructions now for the younger women as well in verses 4 through 5. This is because the instructions there are to occur through a mentoring ministry of the older women. And we've already talked about this, but Paul gives his instructions first to the older men and then to the older women because there would be this natural mentoring ministry that was to take place and it should still be taking place within the body of Christ. The older being the models, the examples, and leading the younger into maturity in Christ. They themselves being mature, or at least supposed to be. Supposed to be. I, um, I do like the translation of this section in the NET a little bit better. And just so you know, where periods go and sentences start, well, the I would say the, the uh, periods and those kind of things are not in the Greek, so they just have to determine those things, and so translations determine that sometimes a little differently, trying to figure out, all right, where's the new thought? Uh, where does the sentence begin? Where does the sentence end? But So you'll see it look a little different sometimes in translations. It generally means the same thing, but it maybe flows a little bit better, maybe communicates the truth a little bit clearer. I like the NET. It says this, Older women likewise are to exhibit behavior fitting for those who are holy, We talked about again that last week. Not slandering, not slaves to excessive drinking, but teaching what is good. So that's one whole big statement altogether. All of that. Then verse 4. In this way, in all of that, right? Reverent behavior, avoiding behavior, bad behavior that's part of their culture, and teaching what is good. In this way, they will train the young women too. So we're going to talk about uh, younger women, but we're... We're just finishing off on the part of older women who are going to teach the younger women, and so we just got to deal with a couple of these phrases. Teaching what is good. Teaching what is good or right. That's what the older women are to do. Teaching what is good or right. It, uh, that word, those words, teaching what is good, it's actually a single compound word in the Greek. It occurs only here in all Greek literature, only here. Uh, The word itself does not necessarily mean, as one uh, commentator points out, it does not necessarily mean formal instruction. As if, 
all right, come over here, all you young ladies, and now I'm going to give you a class on good things, on teaching what is good. It's not that. Rather, it is speaking of the advice and encouragement that the older woman can give privately to the younger woman by word and example. That's the idea. So, to pull it all together, by the older woman's sound instruction and godly example, they will train the younger women in how a Christian woman should conduct herself. You with me? So that captures, that pulls us all the way up. Now, the word train, the word train that you see there, choo-choo, it's not that. It's not that. Another translation has encourage, but I, I would stick with train. I think train's a better word. The verb that's translated train there, scholars point out it's highly unusual. It literally means to bring someone to his or her senses. To bring someone to his or her senses. In other words, showing, in this case, showing what sound thinking is. You're not thinking soundly or rightly or health in a healthy way, and I want you to do that, sound. Um, there's some evidence for it to mean something like advise or urge, and so maybe that's why a translation included, you know, made it encourage, but I would stick with the word train. And um, one commentator said the choice of this word rather than others other words that, the, that Paul could have used for teaching or training suggest that Paul was concerned about the erroneous and foolish concepts that some of the younger women may have heard from the false teachers. Again, it suggests that. We are not told that in our text, but we do in our text know that there were false teachers prior to this section who were upsetting whole households that Paul gave instructions to Titus to silence. And it was also the reason for the appointing of elders, shepherds in those local bodies, that they might be qualified men in order to deal with these false teachers that were teaching things they ought not to teach, ought not to teach for shameful gain. So it's certainly possible that that's why Paul addresses, he spends a lot of time on younger women, there may have been a particular body of false teaching that was leading them astray. And so, teach the older women, instruct the older women that they too, by word and by example, might bring the younger women to their senses. Teach them what is right, whole, wholesome teaching according to sound doctrine, not maybe what they have heard and been persuaded by from the false teachers, or for that matter, from their culture, because their culture was a mess too, just like ours. <laughs> and by a mess, I mean anti-gospel, anti-Christ. Now, what are the specifics of this training? I'm in trouble. All right, here we go. What are the specifics of this training? Back to verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. And here's the purpose clause, that the word of God may not be reviled that others may not think wrongly or badly of the gospel because of the opposite conduct, I don't want them to participate in, that they may have been doing or practicing. 
And again, a commentator says, we aren't told this directly, but in view of the fact that the false teachers, as I pointed out, and you'll see that in chapter 1, verse 11, were upsetting whole families or teaching things that were undermining, possibly, we, we might think, possibly undermining God's roles for husbands and wives, and maybe particularly for the women. It's possible. We, we aren't told this, but it's possible. The writer says, this is not new, this idea, undermining the role for husbands and wives, the biblical role. It's not new, and the battle rages today as never before. And he says this, there was a time in this country when it was taken for granted that a dignified and competent wife and mother devoted to her home and family was a highly desirable constant in American culture. But this is no longer the case. And I would agree. So let's look at it. Let's break it down bit by bit. Love their husbands and children. Love their husbands and children. That's the first one. It's two Greek terms. I, I, would, I would translate it this way instead of love their husbands and children. It's, it's, it would be more literal to say lovers of their husbands, lovers of their children. Okay, Because I think this, when you hear love their husbands and children, I think our default is to think of emotion. And that has nothing to do with this word, really. There might be emotion involved, but it's not necessarily, it's not even about emotion. And, and that's what we think of, love, a feeling. So I like the idea to capture closer to what the word is suggesting. It's lovers of their husband. It's, it's an acting love. It acts. It works. Lovers of their children. One writer says terms that were often used, uh, these terms are often used in Paul's day to describe characteristics highly desirable in a woman. These were used in Paul's day, this, these two Greek terms, a husband lover and a child, their child, lover of their child, lover of their husband. In antiquity, in ancient times, among pagans and Jews alike, the writer says, these twin virtues were regarded as the glory of young womanhood and are frequently mentioned in funerary inscription. What is that? Those are writings in relation to a funeral. Okay? So it would either be, you know, as a remembrance of this person who has passed, they would see these terms being used concerning wife's mothers. This was a lover of her husband. This was a lover of her children. Maybe put on tombstones, that kind of idea. Okay? And it was exalted as a virtue that, of young womanhood and uh, celebrated and thought well of. By the way, it clearly was a behavior, then we know, if people could see it, then we know it was a behavior that could be seen. It was something that was evident in one's life. It wasn't like, you know, I, I could look into her heart and I saw that she really had a great feelings for her husband. It wasn't that. They saw something. Do you get me? They saw it, it was commendable, and they, made, they brought that to notice. And what they saw was the way this woman acted toward her husband and her children. Now, as I said, we use the word love to mean all kinds of things. And not all of those things should be applied to these two Greek adjectives. I've already said emotion. 
Remove emotion from the discussion, okay? That's not what this is about. Remove romantic from this discussion and remove any idea of a sexual nature. Because even if I say, just in me saying a lover of her husband, we, we might use that to speak of sexual things, right? That's not in this word, okay? You with me? So not emotional, not romantic, not sexual. The meaning of the terms would include these kind of words. So when you're thinking of what is it to be a lover of husband and a lover of children, as I'm called to be by God, that's what he desires of me, think of these words to describe the Greek adjectives. Tenderness, gentleness, caring for, being favorably inclined toward her husband or children. Those words help get at this word. One writer says it this way. I like this. If I just wanted to try to capture it all in a nutshell, he says these two separate adjectives carry the idea of devoted to their husband's children, being given, being given to their care and nurture. You with me? Being given to their care and nurture. So, Capture in your mind the ideas that come into the mind when you say, that is a devoted friend. Do you understand that? Do you understand the difference of one who is not a devoted friend, not a good friend, and one who is? They care about that person. They, that person is someone they give themselves to. They look out for them. They nurture them. They care for them. They are favorably inclined toward them. They want to help them. They don't want to hurt them. You with me? So, you could say it this way. Paul is saying, older women, in doing all this and teaching good things, they will be able to train them, the younger women, to be devoted wives and mothers. Devoted wives and mothers. That's it in a nutshell. Lovers of their husbands and children. By the way, synonyms of devoted, if we're just trying to think of that term, because I think devoted is a good word. I, I could even see myself just putting that right in there, but they, we translate it love, and that's fine, but devoted to really capture the, the idea. But synonyms of devoted would be loving, loyal, faithful, committed, dedicated, caring, attentive. Okay? Just so that we're really clear, antonyms of or near antonyms of the word devoted would be this. Unloving, indifferent, distant, detached, uncaring, unconcerned. If those things characterize the young woman, then she could not say she is a devoted woman or devoted to her husband and children. One writer says this love involves unqualified devotedness. Unqualified devotedness. I like that. That's good. John MacArthur says, Paul's not speaking of romantic or sexual love, which certainly have a proper place in marriage, but rather of a committed love that godly wives choose, choose to have for their husbands. It refers to willing, determined love that is not based on a husband's worthiness. Because if it was... 
right? It would go like this. But rather on God's command, and that is extended by a wife's affectionate and obedient heart. Right? Just as the command to husbands to love their wives and to cherish them is not based on a wife's worthiness. It's the same. It's a choice. It's a decision. By the power of God to make, and not once, but over and over and over again. And especially when the subject of your love is acting in an unworthy way. And you'll be tempted to not make that decision, and yet God calls you in His grace to make the decision for His glory and your good. John MacArthur goes on to say, contrary to popular thinking, love that is carefully built and nurtured is not artificial. It's not artificial. And it's because we in the world think of love just as butterflies or emotions, and that's not biblical love. It's not what this word is talking about. He goes on to say, training yourself to love, training yourself to love involves doing loving things for the other person, whether or not you feel like doing them. It involves putting their interest and welfare above your own. It involves sacrificial giving of yourself to others for their sakes. That's love. Not for the sake of appreciation or returned love or favor. That's a contract. That's a negotiation. All right, I'll do this if I get this. That's not biblical love either. That's not what this word's describing. She was quite the devoted mother and child, or uh, devoted to her, to her, sorry, devoted to her husband and, and children, but it makes sense because he bought her really nice things and he had to keep doing that in order for her to stay devoted. That's not, that's not it. That's not what we're talking about here. It's her choice that she should make because she loves God and because she's grateful for all that he has done for her and recognizes that he has called her into this new life, a good life, a life that he desires for her and will bless. In regard to children, being devoted to children or her children, one writer points out that it seems hardly necessary for Christian women to be trained in loving their own children. Huh? You might think that. But again, he says, the exhortation may pinpoint some special weakness of the Cretan character. Maybe something specific that was going on. Maybe some influence by the false teachers. Like, you know, you don't got to worry about them. I don't know. I don't know. But he goes on to say, if you think it's not possible for a woman to be in this way devoted to her children, he says, even our modern age is not without instances of Christian women lacking true maternal affection. For women who put their careers before the welfare of their own children are displaying a significant symptom of this weakness. I would agree. What does this love or devotion look like in real time, real examples? I'm sure you can think of many things, but I would think the most important thing would be the spiritual well-being of both your husband and your children. Right? That's devoted to them. You're seeking, first and foremost, their spiritual well being. For your children, you're seeking their salvation. 
you're praying for it, you're preaching the gospel to them, you're, you're demonstrating to them the beauty that is Christ so that they won't be repelled by this Christ you preach to them, but drawn to him, right? You seek the spiritual growth of your husband, so you do those things that would help him to grow in Christ, not deter him or tempt him to turn from Christ. I think it would also include, of course, their physical well-being and their emotional well-being, their well-being in general. That's what true devotion would look like to anyone. Certainly, gossiping about your husband to other women or discussing all his faults with your mother or family would not be devotion to him. Just, I threw that out there. I mean, I don't know if that's ever happened, but... I've heard it happen, so yeah, that's not devotion. You think that's going to help him? It doesn't help him. It's really great for you know, family gatherings and stuff when you all get together and everyone knows your business, you know, everyone there, and, but all they really know, though, is all the negative, all the bad. That's really going to help all those family relations and get together. It's going to be so good for him. That's not devotion. Uh, it is. It's devotion to yourself, I guess. You're really devoted to yourself but not to your husband, not to your children. Back to the text. More could be said, but we're moving on. Verse 5, the next thing is to be self-controlled. I've dealt with this particular Greek word a number of times already. I've told you that it would, I think, better to be translated sensible. Sensible, which is how it is translated in some other translations of the Bible, meaning acting in accordance with wisdom or prudence. It's interesting because this specific characteristic is called out for elders in chapter 1, verse 8. They are to be sensible or self-controlled. It's also for older men, verse 2. It's also for younger women, verse 5. And it's also for young, I'm sorry, younger women, and also for younger men, verse 6. In every situation, he brings this one out. They need to, they need to have self-control. They need to be sensible. Self-controlled is fine, but it's self-controlled, if we want to use that translation, in the sense that one makes a decision to put on the mental brakes before acting and choose to act in accordance with biblical wisdom. That's what it is. That's the self-control that's supposed to be exercised. You are in control in the sense of you aren't just tossed to and fro by your fluctuating emotions or acting on a whim, but rather you are living in light of God's wisdom and making a decision to make decisions based on that wisdom, living in light of his word and eternity and the things of God. That's what it is, in this case, to be sensible. The one who is not sensible is the one who acts with no thought of God, no thought of his word, and no thought of eternity, but allows their fluttering heart to drive them and move them wherever it may take them. That is not sensible. That is not self-control. That is being controlled by things that you should know not be controlled by and will get you into incredible trouble and pain. Sensible. Verse 5, next. Pure, pure. 
The word means chaste, free from sin, innocent, pure, the Greek word there, or without moral defect. As one writer points out, it it points to an upright moral character generally, an upright moral character, primarily even. It's moral purity. But in this context, and it can be used this way as well, it could be referring to or certainly include sexual purity, marital faithfulness. She is to be faithful, maritally pure. She is to give herself to him and him alone and no other. Okay? Upright moral character. Back at the text, verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure. What's the next one? Yeah. I didn't, you, didn't, you weren't like super enthusiastic about it, so let's try it again. What was the next one? Thanks, Thomas. So let's talk about this, okay? Certainly this, I think, in some circles, it's uh, maybe people have taught what I don't think the text is saying or maybe emphasize something that that Paul wasn't really going after. Or they have made it mean nothing. (laughs) They go the other direction. They make it, they take the, the punch and the bite out of it. So I'm going to do my best to be faithful, I believe, to the text, to what Paul actually wanted to communicate to his readers and, by extension, to us 2,000 years later, the church, as it goes on. Working at home. Another translation has workers at home. Another translation has busy at home. Busy at home. I, I really like the NET translation. This is what it says. Fulfilling their duties at home. I think that's, a, that's good. That's a good capture of the thought and the intent of the instruction. Why this statement? Why include this statement in the training of the young women? Well, again, I don't know. Maybe something to do with the false teachers. It could also have something to do with just idleness. Idleness. Do you remember the stereotype concerning the Cretans? Remember who this is written to? Do you remember the stereotype? In verse 12 of chapter 1, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul goes on to apply that to the false teachers. But it tells you something about the state of the culture there on that island in the Mediterranean. One writer says... And I I think it does have something certainly to do with idleness. One writer says it is unlikely that Paul had in mind concern about, quote, career women. Hold on, though. So just stay with me until I get all the way to the end. That he had concern about career women or mothers in the secular workplace. Just remember the culture. There were no career women in the first century that didn't ex- they wouldn't have understood what you were saying. Uh, secular workplace, not really, no. 
or men were in the workplace, okay, outside of the home. Uh, certainly women engaged in the markets and the community, but yeah, I just don't, you didn't see, you know, the women in the top 500, Fortune 500 company, you just, that, that wasn't going on back then, okay? So just remember the context and what he's addressing, what he's dealing with. The writer goes on to say, the emphasis is not on the location of a wife's work, but on being productive in the normal occupations of a wife, mother, each day. That's the emphasis. I would also add this, that a married woman with, woman with children could be, as we call them now, a stay-at-home mom and still not fulfill her duties at home. Doing nothing or next to nothing, or so busy with lesser things that she neglects the most important thing. That is, to properly care for her children, for her husband, for her home. You guys are looking at me really strange. I, I'm not sure how to make it, uh, make the feedback that's coming at me. Does it sound weird to you? And look, if it does... It's probably just an indication of how much you've swallowed in our culture, which is antichrist, anti-gospel. I'm refraining myself. I am doing my best, Thomas. I am doing my best. I want to say more, but uh, I'm going to stick with the text. And I'll say this. However... Just because Paul didn't have in mind, certainly, career women, it, it doesn't mean that the text has nothing to say about the idea or practice of career women as is common in our culture today. Our modern jobs in the 21st century may certainly prevent a wife, mother, from properly caring for her household, of fulfilling her obligations and duties at home of truly being a devoted wife and mother. A career, a career, I'll just say, would certainly deprive a woman of the time energy needed to fulfill her duties at home. Assuming young children at home, husband, I'm going to add the young children at home because I'll have another comment about when the kids go away. It would deprive. Just Saturday, I don't have it because I think it's in my, I think it's on my, I'm going to see. I don't normally do this. You're like, Jeremy, you always do weird things. That's true. I do weird things. Yeah, I have it here. I didn't get it off my clipboard. I just found it interesting. God's timing, I would say. I would think. I'm doing this message. I'm thinking it through. And let me just say, there's all kinds of, oh, what about this? What about that? What about this? Okay, I can't address all that. I can't address. I'm just sticking with the text. There, and by the way, when life gets messed up, then it's messed up, and so things don't look exactly like this. So when husbands bail on their wives and leave them hanging, then yeah, it gets all messy. It gets messy, right? What are they, and then they have to survive, and they're working two or three jobs. Yeah, it's all messed up at that point, guys. So let's just stick with the text. Was it? It's referring to a, a woman at home, married, Right? What, what is she striving for? What is, she, what is she to do? What is conduct becoming a Christian and one who believes the gospel and follows Christ? That's what we're talking about. But just on Saturday, there are more moms in Congress than ever before. That was the title of the sermon. I mean sermon, sorry. That was the title. 
I, yeah, I'd like to give it a sermon. That was the title of the news story. Here it is, just a few excerpts from it. More than 100 women. And by the way, this is put out like this is good news. To me, as a Christian, a man who is very familiar with the scriptures, I would think, say, yeah, I would say, I hope you agree, I would say that's not good news. That's not good news. That's just another example of where our culture is just going off the rails, away from the word of God. More than 100 women are currently serving the U.S. House of Representatives, more than at any other time in history. The increase not only adds diversity to Congress, but also the number of working moms. We're not talking about even single women. We're talking about they have kids at home. In Congress, more than one-fifth of the Congress women are moms to young children. We're not even talking about teenagers that could... Fend for themselves. Maybe even that, we could talk about that. Like, you know, listen, they don't really mean they're all day long. I don't even want to be there all day long. I mean, they are irritating as all get out. But they kind of take care of themselves. I come back, I can still manage business. I can take care of my duty. Okay, we're talking about young children. They can't manage themselves. You, mom, are supposed to be there for them. That's what God would have you. Not because I say so or you as a man say so. It's because God said so. So California, of course, Democratic, that's the one who's in the famous, in the, Katie Porter is a new member and single mother of three. <laughs> she commutes between both coasts. And then, of course, she recalls the January government shutdown, and, of course, they bring that into the discussion because they want to, you know, they have an agenda. She says... She told the reporter, I had, to, I had to hop on a red eye on Tuesday night to come back here, and my kids asked me, Mom, when are you coming home? I had to tell them, truthfully, I don't know. Why are you a congresswoman? Why? Why are you a congresswoman? What are you doing? Porter said she was constantly asked about balancing work and family life during the election cycle last year. I'm glad at least she was being asked that question, right? But watch Watch how she spins it. Watch, she's asked this question. Wow, how do you do that, right? Because there's a concern. Watch how she spins it. What I took from those questions was just how much energy and concern there is among the public about balancing work and family. So it just caused me to come to Congress even more energized about working on this issue. Porter said one of her legislative priorities will be working to reduce the cost of childcare, which she fears is driving women out of the workplace. Oh no! That's terrible! Yeah, we definitely need to make it much easier for women with young children to enter into the workforce and give themselves to careers, for sure. And of course, this all stems from, again, I'm trying, brother, from the feminist movement and this call to, if we don't do what men do, then we're not equal and we're being held back by men. That's where it's all stemming from. It's not godly. It's not from Christ. Equality means no. Hey, he, she should be able to leave the kids at home too and go do and pursue her career just like men do. And yet that is not what God has called for. That is not how God has set it up. That is not how God has made women and men for different roles and for different purposes within the home as a husband and wife. It is not. It's a pushback against that. It's just another form of rebellion against the creator. That's what it is. That's what it is. And families are suffering because of it. 
You, you, don't, you cannot push back against God and, and fight him and rebel against him and expect that there are not big consequences. And that's exactly what's happening. One writer says, any woman who makes career status or financial advantage a higher priority in her life than the welfare of her marriage, children, or home transgresses scripture as well as the signals of a heart sensitive to God's spirit. You think that delights the Holy Spirit that dwells in you? You think he's delighted by those kind of things? He is not, if he indeed dwells in you. So the point is, she should be trained to fulfill her duties, responsibilities at home, to be busy at home and not willfully neglect them, not willfully neglect them. And as I said, because our world is messed up, there will be times where she does not want to willfully neglect them, but a young mother might be in a position where she just can't do everything because her husband has left, or maybe he has died, or maybe he has become fully disabled. And she's in a position where she now has to go provide income for the home. And maybe because of her situation, she can't get a job that makes enough money in one job to provide those things. So now she's at two jobs and maybe three jobs. And, and so she struggles. And what the church should do in those situations is try to support these women, come alongside them, help them in their difficult circumstances. But again, there's always these things that happen. Sin messes things up. But in a normal home, in the sense of husband, wife, children, this is what they should be striving for. And even when sin messes it up, they should still strive for it, but it's going to certainly be much more complicated. One writer says, the devoted wife and mother finds her absorbing interest in the innumerable duties of the home. And they are innumerable. Now, let me throw in some John MacArthur here. He says, in regard to being workers at home, and I think this is just a good balance, young Christian wives today must take special care to be sensible as they are admonished earlier in this verse. Sensible, living in light of God's priorities, living in light of God, what God desires and wants, not making decisions on a whim or based on their emotions but thinking these things through clearly and biblically. In consultation with their husbands, we'll get to that in a second, because that is what should be expected as well. In consultation with their husbands, they must use good judgment in deciding how much time can justifiably and wisely be spent in activities outside the home, whether at a paying job or in some form of service. I agree. I think that's right. So again, it's not that a woman couldn't work outside the home, but this other stuff that's happening and being pushed hard in our culture goes against what God desires for the home in many cases. He goes on to say, women who have no children or whose children are grown obviously have fewer obligations in the home and therefore much more time available. And the point is not so much that a woman's place is in the home as that her responsibility is for the home. She may have reasonable outside job. Emphasis on reasonable. But the home is a wife's special domain and always should be her highest priority. And I think, it, I think this is beautiful, and just to cap this together, one writer points out that 
No passage gives us a better picture of the home life that God has in mind than the excellent wife portrayed in Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. We should note that the picture given in Proverbs 31 is of a woman whose ministry extends beyond her own household. So this picture of, look girl, you're locked up in the kitchen, barefoot and pregnant. All that junk, that's junk. That's junk. Okay? The whole idea of barefoot and pregnant is barefoot, she can't even go outside of the house. I'm not even going to give her shoes. I mean, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not biblical either. We should note that the picture given in Proverbs 31 is of a woman whose ministry extends beyond her own household, though the home is the center and focus of her life and takes precedent over all else. And if you read Proverbs 31, you'll see that even when she goes outside of the house and does work like business, she's a, this woman, I'm not going to read it. I have it here to read. Go home and read Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, and you will see that the things that Paul is calling for really flow right out of that section. And I would also recommend to you a good work. It's called The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. By Martha Peace. I would recommend it to all of you uh, ladies, married or not, or hoping to be married or whatever, or not married and wanting to assist other married women in discipleship. It's an excellent piece for you. But through the passage of Proverbs 31, This noble woman, as one writer points out, she takes the responsibility to see that food and clothing are provided for her home. She's making the decisions. She's working with her hands. She's ensuring that the food for the day will be there. A lot of work. Now, it's it's a little bit easier for us now uh, because that means, you know, doing your click list or, you know, having uh, the Amazon deliver it or whatever, but it's still work. It's still work. It's still work, right? Because it's planning, it's thinking. She's, man, she's industrious. This, this is the, the, the woman that is, is more precious than jewels, the text says. More precious than jewels. This woman, the one devoted to her house, devoted to her family. The, not the idle woman, but the busy woman. The hardworking woman. Uh, just strength is what you see there. Not weakness and that strength. Uh, in another part of that section, uh, it, it, it portrays the noble wife as a shrewd businesswoman. She's making wise investments from her earnings. And all of this is done within the, you know, she's not doing this apart from her husband. She's doing this with her husband. His input and his instruction and his guidance as well. Uh, it says in verse 24, the woman's industry finds expression in business. And he says this, this commentator about this, the, the Proverbs section, the poet did not think it strange or unworthy for a woman to engage in honest trade. In fact, weaving of fine linens was a common trade for women in Palestine from antiquity. No one thought that was weird. Like, what are you doing out here, woman? You belong in the house, barefoot and pregnant, you know? No, that's... And so maybe those things have come into the conversation and there's pushback against that. Well, that's not what we're talking about. The excellent wife, as described, as I said, is more precious than jewels. And it's as described in Proverbs. As described is more excellent. Or, sorry, more precious than jewels. But we hear the opposite in our culture. Like, that's low. If you want to be valuable, you got to do this. You got to pursue this. 
You got to be a career woman. You got to break the glass ceiling. It's just not biblical, guys. And we all swallow that water every day. So, goodness. I would also say that uh, we, to ourselves as Christians, can diminish the great value that God's word gives to that role, Un- maybe unknowingly. And so, I, this is something simple I learned a long time to do. I don't ask a woman, unless I forget, I don't ask a woman as I'm meeting her and getting to know her, especially if I know she's a wife and a mother, I don't ask her, Do you work? <laughs> what is meant by that is, do you have a job outside of the house? So I, but it does send a message that I don't, I don't want to send. So I train myself to say, do you work outside the home? It's just little things like that. And the fact that you, if you don't, uh, that doesn't diminish your value at all. Are you working in the home? Are you devoted to your, your family? Then you are more precious than jewels. And we should treat them that way and speak of them that way push back against our culture that diminishes their value. And so I'll just finish with kind. I don't know. I don't know what else to do. The last one, I know you guys, I was hoping to get to it because it talks about submission. No. (laughs) I've dealt with submission before. So I'm not, you know, I just, I looked at my notes. It's just, forget it. It would be terrible to do that to you. But um, I've dealt with it before in First Peter. I'm going to come, I'm going to say some things that I've said in, in, uh, in First Peter. And in fact, in preparation for that sermon, um, I will repeat some of the things I've said from First Peter. But in First uh, Peter 3, uh, verses 1 and 2, I, I did a two-parter because I just can't fit anything into one part, um, called a word to Christian wives that Peter gave, and, it, and it's in reference to a wives submitting to their husbands. And in that context, there's something else going on as well for his call to, for them to do that. But uh, I'm going to borrow from that. I'll get to that next time. Let me finish with kind, okay? We'll come back to... We'll just pick up where we left off. I'm sorry. Uh, back to the passage. Will you look back at it real quick? Would you let your eyes glance back down on your copy of God's Word in verse 4? And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind. I'll close with this because I thought this was appropriate. As we just kind of think of what the image he has in his mind as he's thinking about this young woman, young wife, children at home, The writer says this, and then he calls for kindness after talking about being, you know, all the stuff that she has to do and giving herself to that, giving herself to the innumerable duties that is a family. (laughs) He says, the many duties of the home demand unsparing self-giving. Is that true, women? Moms? and Yeah, come on, right? That's true. And may subject her to the temptation to be irritable. (laughs) And harsh in her demands 
on members of her household. I can't stop screaming at my kids, you know? And that, I actually heard a, a dear sister say that. You can, sister. You can stop screaming, but I get, I get the temptation. I get it. I mean, we went through it all, and Allie would call me or text me or call me and tell me to, at work to come home and to kill our son. So he says, she must therefore cultivate, cultivate the virtue of being kind, benevolent, hardly doing what is good and beneficial to others, especially those of her household. It's a beautiful way. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your instruction. And Father, I'm just going to confess before everyone here, you know this, I've already confessed it to you, Father. I have myself heard things, uh, heard men preach messages, and I have been very bothered uh, by those messages, irritated even, because they've pushed back hard against uh, the way I thought about things, the way I was living the way I thought about you, God, the way I thought about my relationships. And, and Father, by your grace, you've, you've humbled my heart again and again and helped me to see uh, where I have erred, how I have swallowed uh, the false teaching of the culture that I live in, how I have adopted it and not even really thought it out real well or why even think what I think, but just going along with with everyone else. Father, I'm grateful for this work that you do. I'm grateful for your word. It hurts at first, bothers us. It certainly has bothered me all through my life, just various times where I'm not thinking rightly. I'm not believing what I need to believe. And therefore, because of that, I'm not acting rightly. I'm not living as I ought to live. And as a result of that, I've gotten myself into some really mess, big messes and hurt myself and hurt others. And, and Father, you love us, you love us, you love us. So you give us guidance, you give us your word. You tell us what should be important to us, what's important to you, how we ought to live. Father, help us to trust you. You are good. You don't give us bad instruction. You don't tell us things that'll hurt us. You tell us what will bring you glory and will be for our good. And we go through this struggle again and again and doubting that. And and so, Father, I just pray. Pray for my my dear brothers and sisters. Break our proud, stubborn hearts. Just break it with your word and by your spirit. Help us just to trust and obey. In Jesus' name, amen.